Well, good uh, morning. Welcome to 11 o'clock service. Is your first time? We are in the middle of a series titled Faith to Flourish, Faith to Flourish. And it was kind of birthed out of just really Jesus' intention for your life and for my life. John 10, 10, uh, Jesus does not hide his motives. He says, I've come to give life and life abundantly. Greek word would be super abundance. So he wants your life to flourish. And then, so I started looking throughout scripture and I saw this rhythm from God that basically he wants to set us up to flourish. And so Psalm 1, there's a promise. If you read the word and meditate on the word, that you will flourish like a tree. Psalm 92, it talks about if you will actually get in the courts of God and get in the church of God and surround yourself with people who dream different, love different, that are going to cheer you on differently, that you are going to flourish. It shows in John 15 that he is the vine and the branch, a.k.a. that if you try to plug in and get power and love and joy from other places, you will wither. But if you plug into Jesus, a.k.a. have a relation with Jesus, your life will flourish. Galatians 5 says the fruit of this flourishing is going to be the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Those are the things that will mark your life. There's nine of them. And then I started looking at just people in our culture and our world. I'm like, man, I don't see a lot of people flourishing, Lord. I want people to flourish. What does it take to flourish? Really, I, I feel like the simple answer would be faith in what he's told us to do. Faith in the promises, faith in the warnings, faith in the uh, commitment in the process. And again, the comparison to us being uh, botanical in the Bible, that we are compared to the growth of plants. There's fascinating things about plants. One is I found out today when I was setting up for my good friend Tina, uh, she's a gardener. She said, if you want pumpkins today, you need to plant them in May. So talk about that. So if you want to plant pumpkins in May, who's thinking about the harvest time, about pumpkins or um, harvest festivals, whatever you call this time of the year, um, uh, and start planting pumpkins in May? If you want tomatoes, my wife told me you got to plant them whenever, I guess like now and then, or April and you get them in July, I don't know, something like that. And the reason why this is fascinating to me in the botanical thing is a lot of people want peace in their marriage, but they just want to plant the seed and have it the next day. But what I, this series is, is this is not a quick fix. I'm not preaching a sermon for a quick fix. I believe I'm preaching a series that I believe is supposed to be a lifestyle decision. That you say, man, I want peace in my home. Well, I'm going to start praying for peace today and believe by January 2019, a season of my life, I'm going to commit to praying for peace that in January, I'm going to see peace in my home. I'm going to watch the Lord water, and I'm going to watch the, word, the Lord cultivate it. I'm going to keep praying it, and I'm going to see peace happen. Why don't you catch this real quick with me? I want you to picture, give yourself some vision for your life. It says in the Bible that those who do not vision, they'll perish, basically. And I believe one of the assignments on your life is the enemy doesn't want you to dream. doesn't want you to have a vision for your life. doesn't want you to have a picture bigger than yourself. And I want you to picture real quick, picture your marriage being amazing. Picture your friendships being amazing. If you're single, just picture your life being amazing. Single, this is a gift. You get to do what you want, eat what you want, say what you want. It's amazing. Straight up. I love marriage, though. I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm just saying, everybody's always like, oh, I wish I could get married. And like, you know that you get to do whatever you want. You know what I'm saying? Trust me, it's a gift. Uh, anyways, it is. It's a gift. It's a gift. They're both gifts. But I think the problem is we don't look as one as a gift and not the other as a gift. I might be in trouble. Let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. I'm just kidding. I love my girl. I love my girl. Uh, anyways, picture your life flourishing. Picture your career flourishing. Picture your dreams flourishing. There's something said about culture and how it affects us and impacts us. Culture is this amazing thing that really it's teaching us that uh, instant gratification is just the norm. That we walk into a grocery store and just grab things that take months to develop. Um, you can take a picture on your phone, post it to Instagram, 
and get a like within 10 seconds. But back in the day, there used to be these things called cameras, real cameras, that have film. Remember these? Straight up, right? Right? Go camping. You'd be like, okay, everybody get in the picture. Okay, I'm going to take a picture. I got it. I think, you know. And you would take pictures more by faith than actually by sight. You know what I'm saying? Like, I believe there's a good one in here, you know. And they'd be like, oh, my gosh, let's get a selfie. And you'd be like, oh, my gosh, there's only 30 of these. I hope this works. <laughs> and then you get, you take a picture. And then at the very end of this, you would take the pictures and you would drop them off at a place Young people are like, what is he talking about? This is crazy. Yeah, like the um, Target and Walmart, it used to be like one hour photo. You could drop them out of a photo place. Some people were one hour because they wanted it faster, but it'd maybe take a few days sometimes. And you drop it off and come back. And, and even while you dropped it off, you'd be talking to your friends, like, I wonder how we look in our pictures, you know? Uh, I remember I was smiling. Oh, they're going to be hilarious. And you're just thinking about it, you want to reminisce on your trip. So you go and pick them up. And then you look through them, and you find out the selfie only has like one eyeball, and um, some of them turned out, some got some weird like uh, light mark on them. You're like, all right, win or loss, stop. I believe one of the things that we have to do in this series is this series is not trying to create spiritual sprinters; it's trying to create marathon runners. Hebrews 12 says to run the race with endurance, and so you have that picture. That picture you have, it would be nice to say, I'm going to pray the, my prayer, and tomorrow that picture comes to fruition. But the Bible shows more times than not that we pray that prayer, and we have that picture, and we need to give that picture to the developer of all developers. You heard what I'm saying this morning. And that you trust him to develop it. And then you tend to what you're supposed to tend to, and you steward what you're supposed to steward, and you pray what you're supposed to pray. And in time, the dream that you have, God will have that flourish. There's a man who won a Pulitzer Prize Ernest Becker, and he just wrote a book, basically uh, a ton of them, but 1974, he won one uh, on the, the meaning of death. But he wrote another book called the, the Meaning of Birth and Death. And basically in his book, he's trying to talk about society and humans, secular man, not a Christian book, not a, a Christian author, but he's confused on why so many people can't find their identity and their purpose, and they're so discontent. So he does these studies, brings in psychiatrists, sociologists, and does all these studies, and one of them actually wins a Pulitzer Prize. This one is an amazing thing because he sums up basically man's life in this. He goes on to say that identity has to do with what you are here for and what you're working for. And what is the work we are meant to work upon? Your identity basically is whatever you do. And he goes, he goes on to say that basically what drives you is to find out what you're supposed to do. And once you find out what you do, then you'll find your identity. This is his uh, his. Um, uh, hypothesis, if I could put it that way. And basically, he's answering a, a question. Uh, he's bringing all these questions, but really not a lot of great answers. And Jesus comes on the scene, and I believe he says, I have the answer. I have the answer to why you don't have peace yet, because you won't find peace in the world. You only find it in me. I have the answer why you don't feel like you have purpose yet, because you won't find purpose in the world. You only find it in me. I'll let you know why you don't have joy yet, because you won't find joy in the world. You only find it in me. So in Matthew 16, in Faith of Flourish, we are going to see one of the most faith-filled moments ever in the Bible. It's Peter declaring who Jesus is, which is this epic moment. Uh, it's Jesus giving Peter his identity and his assignment in Matthew 16. It's also Jesus giving Peter the greatest rebuke ever in the Bible. We're going to see that. So, so can you imagine getting your identity from God? Like, man, you, man, Peter, you're awesome. Your new name is not, your name is not even Simon. You're Peter because you're that great. I'm about to build a church with you, man. And then the next thing, they're like, oh, step away from me, Satan. I mean, talk about like a, a hard little season, right? And then last but not least, Jesus in Matthew 16 gives one of the greatest promises ever. And if you lose your life, that's when you save your life. And the Greek word really says when you lose your life to this world, you'll find your true self. And I believe a lot of people desire to live their true self, to live with a light yoke on their life, to live with joy and peace and not be crushed by culture. So that's the message today. Sound good?
Okay. Bow your heads. Lord, uh, we love you. Oh, we love you. In Matthew 16, speak to us, Lord. Your word, it's a light, it's a lamp. It's what uh, really does shape us. And, oh, it, it removes things that shouldn't be living in our heart and our soul. Oh, we need you, Jesus. May my words fall to the floor and may your words soar. And everybody said? All right, let's dive in here. Matthew 16, Matthew 16. We didn't have keys today, so Caleb did the guitar pretty good, huh? Nice job, Caleb. Lacey, our amazing uh, um, keyboardist, pianist, I don't know what you call them, uh, person who plays the keys. Uh, she's taking a break this Sunday. We miss her. We love her. I think she's in search. Are you in search? Is Lacey first or second? Lacey, we love you. We love you. Come on now. You don't know what you miss until you don't have it. And today I was like, where are the keys at? Um, but hey, rest is good. Rest is good. You should. Okay. Right. Anyways, um, she like serves like every Sunday. Um, Matthew 16, 13 says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Stop. This is what I would define as the DTR in the relationship. Define the relationship. I remember being a young adult pastor for a handful of years when I was in L.A., and I saw these happen all the time, okay? Um, girls and guys would be hanging out, and they looked like boyfriend, girlfriend. They acted like boyfriend, girlfriend. They went out to dinner like boyfriend, girlfriend. They watched um, uh, Notebook like girl, boyfriend, girlfriend. And so then the boy would ask the girl, hey, what are we? And she'd be like, we're just friends. And he'd be like, oh, and just kill and walk away. Girls, just a quick heads up. Just, this is just for free. It's not even my message. If there is a fella that is hanging out with you, shopping with you, watching movies with you, hanging out with you, I'm going to just say 99%, not 100%. He likes you, okay? Um, uh, and just let him off the hook. Tell him or, or just let him be free. Set him free. Poor guy. <laughs> Poor guy. Put in a lot of hours. Put in a lot of hours. You know what I'm saying? Set him free. Or say, I like you too, okay? Yeah, come on now. Come on. All right, let's go back to the Bible, which is why we're here. Okay. Um, Simon Peter answered, you are the uh, Messiah, the son of the living God. So here's what happens. People are defining their relationship with this man named Jesus as a prophet, as some great teacher. But Peter is saying, hey, you're not just a teacher to me. No, you're not just some supplement to me. You are my Messiah. You are God. You are Jesus. And I think the first thing that you have to do, if you have to decide who is the authority in your life, is Jesus a supplement or is he savior? You have to have a DTR with Jesus. You gotta ask yourself, man, when I come to church, am I just trying to get a quick pick-me-up or am I coming to Jesus saying, man, you're Messiah. What do you have for my life? Take what you need to take, add what you need to add. This is one of the greatest questions that you need to answer in all of your life if you want to flourish. Jesus goes on to say, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. It's an amazing thing. Look at this rhythm. Who you give your authority to is who you're going to receive your assignment from. Let me say that again. Whoever you give your authority to, whatever you give the most power to, you give power to a parent, power to a spouse, power to culture, power to a dream, whatever you give, you're going to get your identity and assignment from. Peter gave his power and authority to Jesus, and Jesus gave him a life-giving assignment and a life-giving identity. Goes on to say, Upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it, and I will give the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Goes on to say, from that time on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem 
and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised. Everybody say raised. raised. Come on, let's celebrate that every time you read that. Come on. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Here comes the greatest rebuke ever in the Bible. You remember, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. You whitewashed tombs. You make everything look good on the outside, but man, your heart's breaking on the inside. You are nasty on the inside. You're a hypocrite. You're angry. You're selfish. You make everything look religious, but inside it's just selfishness. He would say to other people that were judging people, he would, he would never ever actually um, uh, get angry at the sinners. He would get angry at the people that were shaming the sinners. He actually was gentle and soft to people who were struggling with sin and struggling with um, things in life. But this moment... Jesus takes it to another level, and he says to uh, Peter, Step away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Lord, help us see it from your point of view. Oh, may we not be shaped by this world. Here we go. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. That's that verse in the translation, really, the best way to say it is, if you give up your life and give it to me, you will find your true self. You will find the true meaning of life. You will find the true purpose of life. You will find true fulfillment. If you give your life away, you'll get everything that your heart's always desired. That's what he's saying. It's, it's in all four Gospels. All four. You understand this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 60% are, are similar. So they call it the synoptic Gospels, fancy word for similar Gospels. John is a gospel also. 90% is different from the other three. But in all four, this verse is in there. Theologians believe this, this part of uh, the story is in there in each four because Jesus was always telling them over and over again, hey, lose your life to save it. All four eyewitness accounts have this in there. It's an amazing thing. Deidre Bonhoeffer in 1937 wrote a book, Cost of Discipleship, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and why the Lord says this in all four gospels. It goes on to say, and what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Anything worth more than your soul? To unpack Matthew 16, I want to give a little context before we go into the teaching, is when he goes to Peter even, he says, hey, on you I'm going to build the church. The church I'm going to build on this rock. Now, uh, Protestants and Catholics have debated what this means. Uh, that means Peter became Pope. You look throughout Scripture, hermeneutics, you let Scripture interpret Scripture. I see this. I see that Jesus is the cornerstone. He is big rock. Literally, Peter means little rock. So what Jesus is saying in this moment, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to be the first sacrifice. I'm going to have suffering actually advance the kingdom. Death will bring life. Um, um, selflessness will bring life. I'm going to do all these things. Now I'm the big rock. You will be little rock, and now you will follow my steps. Your suffering will actually have a purpose now. Before your suffering had no purpose, now it will have a purpose. Peter, when he says, hey, don't do it, Jesus. Don't go die. You don't need to do that. Theologians say this is what would be summed up as just immature Christianity. And the word that he says you're trapped in me is actually scandalon. It is the same word in Matthew 4 when Satan is tempting Jesus to have the world instead of have heaven. And I believe the same trap is always offered to us and it's in our flesh that simply this, is that we are going to be tempted to want the world instead of actually wanting heaven. And the strongest rebuke ever is going to come to you because guess what? The world will destroy you and heaven will restore you. So you have to hear the rebuke from Jesus saying to you, if you are saying, man, sure would like some of this world, the Lord would say to you, stop it. That's the same spirit that destroyed Satan, and I will not let that spirit destroy my sons and daughters. Do not see things from a human point of view. Let the world things die so the heaven things can birth. So how do we get there? How do we become people that actually want heaven? It's easy to say, like, oh, pray you want heaven. Pray, oh, it's all great. Yeah, woohoo, I want heaven. 
And then you go out and you're surrounded by the world. You're surrounded by a culture that is just chasing money. It's the most affluent area in the, in the U.S. There are three things that you can give authority to. And I believe that you have to decide today where you'll give your authority so you can flourish. First thing you can give authority to is culture. We're going to talk about that in a second. Second thing you can give authority to is your inner self, whatever you think is right. You become the judge, jury, and executioner of whatever you're supposed to do. If it feels good, I do it. I'm the one who decides what's right in life. I am the one that is going to direct my life. That's, I'm the authority. Or last but not least, you can give it to Jesus. So let's look at culture real quick. Brene Brown is um, a researcher at University of Houston, and she gave the number one TED Talk for the longest time. Now it's number four. It's a phenomenal TED Talk on basically our culture, and our culture, she sums up, is we are in a culture of achievement. We are in a performance-based culture. Now, a performance-based culture is going to put a yoke on people that is going to destroy them. So she starts to do a study. This isn't a Christian study. She's doing a study on what this culture is doing to human beings. So she takes women and studies women, takes men and studies men, and here's what she says. You ready? She says, men and women experience the pressure of achievement in very different ways. Here's how she says women experience an achievement-based culture. Women are expected and sometimes desire to be perfect, yet we're not allowed to look as if we're working for it. We want to just materialize somehow. Everything should be effortless. The expectation is to be natural beauties, natural mothers, natural leaders, natural good parents. We want to belong naturally to fabulous families. Brene goes on to argue in the achievement culture with perfection as a standard. A woman is forced into impossible either-ors. Here's her list. Be perfect, but don't make a fuss about it. And don't take time away from anything like your family or your partner or your work or to achieve your perfection. If you're really good, perfection should come easy. Another either or. Don't upset anyone or hurt anyone's feelings. But say what's on your mind. Another either or. Dial the sexuality way up. After the kids are down, the dog is walked, and the house is clean, the job is done. But dial it way down at the PTA meeting. And geez, whatever you do, don't confuse the two. Hey, yo. Another one, just be yourself, but not if it means being shy or unsure. Don't make people feel uncomfortable, but be honest. Don't get too emotional, but don't be too attached either. Too emotional and you're hysterical. Too detached and you're a cold-hearted witch. She uses a different word, but we're in church, so we're just going to use witch, okay? Cool? All right. She goes on to say, what is this uh, perfection complex we have? Super moms, super wives, super people, super women? Oh my gosh, look at that woman who had, uh, uh, what they had for dinner. We had ramen noodles and hamburger meat, but the mother down the road who worked all day, she made salad from the stuff she grew in her backyard, farm to table. Oh my gosh, I've fallen short. Let's keep going. Think about what this does. If you have been perfect, can you... Uh, so think what this does. If you have to be perfect, can you say no, or do you have to say yes to every opportunity? If other mothers are doing it, you should be able to do it too. This is the siren song of perfection. It's soul crushing. She goes on to say about men. Here we go, fellas. You ready? Men, according to Brene Brown and her research, experience it differently. Here's how men experience achievement culture. Basically, men live under the pressure of one relenting message. Do not be perceived as weak. Don't fail. Don't fail at work. Don't fail in marriage. Don't fail in bed. Don't fail in your money. Don't fail with your children. It doesn't matter. Don't fail. Don't be wrong. Don't be soft. Don't reveal any weakness or fear. Don't get criticized or ridiculed. Uh, so in an achievement culture, the woman says, I have to be perfect. And the man goes, I can't be weak or ever fail. And if I could just be honest with you, I've seen this play out with so many men that if they would have just confessed their struggle, they would have avoided an affair. If they would have just uh, confessed their struggle, 
and they said they were weak in an area, and other people, guys around them that they trusted would step up and help them, there'd be so many other things that would be avoided. Let's look at the inner self now. The inner self, Brene Brown goes on to say, is that we basically find our own basically litmus test of how we'll be worthy and how we'll be great. So she goes on to say that these are some uh, things that people go on to say how they'll make themselves worthy and be good enough. I'll be worthy when I lose 20 pounds. I'll be worthy when I can get pregnant. I'll be worthy if I can get and stay sober. I'll be worthy if everyone thinks I'm a good parent. I'll be worthy if I can hold my marriage together. I'll be worthy when I make partner. I'll be worthy when my parents finally approve. I'll be worthy when I can do it all and look like I'm not even trying. Stop. Let's go on to my observations. So uh, Brene Brown did some research. Tyler Johnson's research says this, okay? There may be a little drop off on the smart meter, but bear with me, okay? Um, <laughs> we take some achievements. Just kidding. Like, I'm smart. Um, we take the same achievement-based culture, basically. This is how I observed it. Didn't grow up in church, but when I came in church, I felt it. We take the same achievement-based uh, culture, performance-based culture, and we bring it into the church. These are some worthies that I've noticed in church that I've even operated in. I'll be worthy once I stop this one sin that I can't tell anyone about. I came to church, started on alert. I got this one thing I can't tell anybody. If I tell everybody, they'll be done with me. I got to take care of this one sin, and once I do, then I'm good. That's not in the Bible. I'll be worthy once I start doing this for God. Okay, I get it. I got to stop doing this, but then if I do this, then once I start doing this, then I'll be worthy. I'll be worthy once I look like the people I go to church with. Well, okay, I came to church, and everybody looks like they got a button together. They all look like nice little whitewashed tombs. And so I need to become a nice little whitewashed tomb. I need to look perfect. Got to get my stuff together. Got to make sure when I walk in, hey, how are you? I'm great. I'm going to break down if you knew it. Hey, good to see you. I'll be worthy when I like the people I go to church with. Come on. Goes on to say, I'll be worthy of blessing if I can be good for this long. Some of you leave church and you get fired up and you start thinking, man, if I just can be good for this long, then I'll be worthy to flourish. If I can just not sin for this long and I do this thing for this long, then God will let me flourish because then I'll make myself worthy to flourish. Also not in the Bible. I'll worship better on Sundays when I can do all the things I think that make me worthy. I'll accept the person once they start doing this. How did they get promoted? They aren't worthy of promotion. It says this in Acts. It's a powerful verse. It goes on to say in Acts 13, 45 through 47. It's, it's this fascinating moment where Paul tells the people why they missed out on the promises of God, why they missed out on the flourishing of God. He goes on to say, but when some of the Jews saw the crowds, they were jealous. So they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to the Jews, but since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy. Everybody say, judged yourselves unworthy. Of eternal life, we offered to the Gentiles, for the Lord gave us this command, what we said. Stop. This is the ethos of this scripture, real quick. This is what it's saying. Because you judge yourself unworthy of the blessing of God, you missed out on the promise of God. And so now we're going to Gentiles, and Gentiles are realizing that they don't make themselves worthy, but Jesus makes them worthy. They are actually getting the promise of God. And I think two things happen in church. A lot of people miss out on the promise of God because they don't think they're ready to receive the promise of God. Oh, my life isn't good enough to have that good life. What, what does it even look like? What kind of life does that look like? The, the Bible says that our best deeds are filthy rags before the Lord. 
Here's what the Bible says actually about worthiness. Ready? It says that we were dipped, basically. That there was nobody who could save the world, save anything, who can open this scroll. And it says this lamb that was slain that was worthy to open the scroll is talking about Jesus. So it opens up the scroll, and we're going to go down to verse 11. It goes on to say this. Then I looked and heard the voice of my, many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and tens of thousands times tens of thousands. Catch this real quick. This should be a hit in your life. This is one of the top hits of all of the heaven. Think about it. Thousands upon ten thousands upon ten thousands of angels, and they're worshiping with this, uh, this line. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Stop. Who's worthy? Worthy is the Lamb. And I think the problem in church today is that we are so fixated on inner self instead of actually on the Lamb of God. You look throughout Scripture, the Lamb of God is the answer. Abraham and Isaac, they're dipped. A lamb shows up. Come on now, it's always when the lamb shows up, it changes the game. You may be saying, man, how did that person get promoted? Worthy is the lamb. And how, how did this happen in my life? What, why did I get this and, and why am I so blessed? Worthy is the lamb. When you come to church and you're having a hard time worshiping, stop making worship about how good you were and throw your hands up that, are, that, that maybe have sin on them and let blood come over them in the name of Jesus that washes you clean and say, worthy is the lamb. There's something to be said about it. When you wake up on a Monday morning, you know what? I'm going to be blessed today, not because I'm good, but because worthy is the lamb. I'm going to keep going. You, you think your marriage can't get restored because you're the one who blew it? Hey, I'm not going to be able to fix it, but I know who can. Jesus Christ, worthy is the lamb. You have to have a new mindset. The word of God shows you. You are not the one that can fix things. The only one who can fix things is Jesus. Worthy is the lamb. When things are dipped, you look around. Guess who shows up? The lamb that was slain. So you have three options. You can give culture the authority of your life and have the either-ors for the rest of time because culture will keep switching on you and telling you you can do this, but you can't do that. Culture will say, well, now this is okay, but that's not okay. And culture will say, well, now I sign off on this, but I don't sign off on that. And then inner self, guess what will happen? You will walk around, and all you'll do is you'll be using sideways energy, and you'll be judging yourself unworthy and judging other people unworthy. And when you do that, you'll miss out on being a part of the promise of somebody else's life and miss out on the promises of your own life. So what you do is you come to Jesus, like Peter does. Man, you're the Messiah. You're Lord. I want you to give me my assignment. I want you to give me my identity. Because here's what happens when Jesus gives you your identity. It changes everything. It changes it on a cosmic level, if I can put it that way. Let me prove it to you. When I got married, I'm just going to keep it real, okay? Um, I was uh, somebody who would work out two hours a day, five days a week. I got down to about 6% body fat. I had a six-pack. Um, I watched this movie named 300, not a Christian movie. Don't judge me. I liked it, okay? Okay? I saw the TBS version. How's that, all right? Um, anyways, I remember like, all right, that's it. I'm going to work out, and I'm going to become King Leonidas, okay? Um, and so I literally worked out, and I got just, okay? Two hours a day, ate everything. I literally um, met with trainers. I, I literally like, I planned out my meals. It was amazing, Okay? The motivation behind this was simple. I was single. I was trying to get buff and whatever so I could get me a lady, okay? I snagged this girl named Rachel Johnson. Say what? Okay, come on now. So I, I snagged her. I snagged her. I was looking for affirmation from everybody, so I went and worked out so I could have affirmation. I meet my wife, and this is what she says to me all the time. Oh, my gosh, you're like a statue. And so she always compliments me. But the problem is, is my wife doesn't care if I'm ripped or cuddly. She actually likes me cuddly more than ripped. So then yesterday even, I'm sitting there, and I have two cupcakes in front of me. <laughs> and I was planning on going to the gym. But my wife loves me no matter what. 
So I had two cupcakes, a red velvet and a lemon one. And it was amazing. I drank some coffee and watched some football. But the problem is, when we first got married, my wife would always tell me, oh my gosh, you look like a statue. I went from 188 to 236, okay? That ain't no statue. <laughs> Set me up with all that affirmation, with all that authority. There's, 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 there's a meaning behind this story, I promise. So finally, I went and got a scale. Got me a scale that talked to me. Straight up ruthless scale. I literally will tell me in my phone, you is overweight, okay? If I gain a few more pounds, it's going to tell me I'm obese. This thing is ruthless, okay? Which I think is off. I feel like I'm doing all right. Jeez. Um, <laughs> but here's what happens. You ready? Let me catch this real quick. When you give authority to the wrong things, they will celebrate the wrong things. When you give authority to culture, hey, just keep doing what you're doing. Love you just the way you are. Just the way you are. And so you don't have to change, and you just become whoever you want to be, and you do those things. Guess what happens? It leads to death. The word of God is the scale, and it's good. Everything it does, it leads to life. So let's go on to the next part, which I think would lead to life, and it's part of the scale, and it's the rebuking. I believe that if you give your authority to Jesus, you've got to allow him to rebuke you like Jesus would rebuke. So it goes to Peter, and Peter wants the worldly life. Peter wants Jesus to have the worldly life with him. It goes on to say, let's read it real quick again, but Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, this will ever happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. I think one of the biggest things that Jesus is doing in this moment is he's rebuking the hype of how great the world is. Don't believe the hype. Because this, this, is, this is a lie that Peter has believed so deeply that he is willing to have you and I never go to heaven because he thinks the world is that good. Think about this again. Peter, hears that he's going to go die and then rise three, three days. He's like, mm, I, still, I know you're going to conquer death, but this, what we got right now, I'm loving this. Don't go die. And what happens a lot is this lie of the world is better than heaven gets so deep in our soul that Jesus has to rebuke it with the strongest words. That is not from God, it is from Satan. And when you start to think about your life, and am I being so selfish that am I most selfless person in the Bible? Jesus. Most selfish person in the Bible? Satan. Most humble person in the Bible? Jesus. Most prideful person in the Bible? Satan. So when I start to look at my life, and I get arrogant, and I get selfish, I let the word of God just pierce me. And I do different things that I know that will be good for my soul. I've started a new thing where I don't want to be selfish. I want to be generous. So I put 20s in my wallet, and I give away money to people when I feel like the Lord told me to give money away. DoorDash guy came by my house the other day, delivered me a Jersey Mike sandwich. I gave him a $20 tip, and he's like, bro, you made my week, man. And I was like, this is actually really good for my soul in all the ways. It's phenomenal. And here's so the worldly way I would say, don't you dare give money to anybody. They don't deserve your money. But the, the heavenly way would be, gen be generous. Be, be giving, because God is giving. The, the heavenly way would be forgive everybody. The worldly way would say, don't you dare forgive that person. They're not worthy of forgiveness. There are worldly lies that you've believed in your soul that are creating death, and God wants to give you heavenly promises that will create life. Allow him to rebuke you. Debating not sharing this, but I'll go for it. Why not? We're all friends. Um, Proverbs 5 and 7, I, I feel like I want to share this today because I feel like, again, it's, it's one of the things where culture is so slippery. There's this rebuke from the Lord, and it's just a correction. He says this to the, the young man, but the man who's just walking around in culture. He says, you are going to be walking around, and a immoral woman will basically entice you 
to come in and to be with her. And it says that it will all look good, basically. But at the end of this, it will taste like honey, but it will create death. And this death will destroy your name and your family and your finances. So he says to this young man, run away. The problem, I feel like, is we have this lie from the enemy that we think we can manage those things. But God's rebuke is run away. I want a new culture where we listen to the authority in our life, which is Jesus. If he says run away, I run away. If he says to give, I give. If he says to serve, I serve. If he says to forgive, I forgive. If he says to love, I'm going to love. Come on. Thank you. The world will set you up to fail. It's that simple. You need some what I call stoppers in your life. I'll never forget I'm in high school. And my friends are going to Paris for the choir retreat, the choir tour. They're going to go to Paris and London for choir. I'm a senior in high school. A couple of my buddies are in it. The girl I was dating was in it. And they're like, Tyler, you can make the choir. You can do it. Try out. You got this. So all of them, like, they're like, you can do it. You can do it. You know? And so they're like, here's what the two songs you got to practice. My pony lies over the ocean. My Bonnie lies over the sea. And then you gotta do, swing low, sweet chariot. Okay? So I'm practicing. They're like, oh, you sound great. Why they're saying they're kind of laughing as I'm practicing. I'm sitting in line. I'm just gonna be honest. I'm sitting in line and I'm hearing people sing, my Bonnie, like, like, like beautifully. And I'm like, oh my gosh, they're setting me up to just fall on my face. I wanted to go to Paris. That's all I wanted to do. That's why I was trying out for the choir. Paris and London, yes, please. Um, I'm sitting, I'm next up. I remember I was like, no, I am not a singer, and that's okay. I play hoops. I'm good. Person stands up for the next trial, Mr. Michael. I remember just standing up and just walking away. <laughs> and I was like, Todd, where are you going? <laughs> I think we get talked into things that we were never supposed to do in our life. I think we get this yoke put on us. And Jesus is standing there, and he's rebuking, get up, get up. You're not supposed to, I never said to be this busy. I never said to be so fixated. I never said this was your life. Get up and go this way just because everybody else is sitting in line doing it and they want to go there. This isn't for, get up, I got your promise. Get up and walk away. Stop believing the hype of this world. The hype is a lie from Satan. Let's keep going. Matthew 16. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. It's the promise of God. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. So in 1937, Bonhoeffer wrote a book. It was, of course, in German. And basically it means it's an invitation. The whole book, The Cost of Salvation, it's an invitation to come die. It's one of my favorite books of all time. I'd say Bonhoeffer is Caleb's favorite author. Spurgeon is mine. What we share because we both love them. It's all good. And he goes on to just investigate this verse and investigate the ethos of what God is saying here. I want you to hear this real quick. An invitation from God to have you leave the world behind to come experience heaven is the greatest invitation ever. But the enemy is so good at lying that people still have to process, is it worth it to me? And Jesus even finishes the verse with, what good is it? He even, I feel like he's trying to really go, like, pound the point home. What good is it if you choose the other way to gain the whole world but you lose your soul? What is a soul worth to you? What is your soul worth to you? To believe the promise of the world over this promise I just gave you. And my prayer today is that you would let worldly things die so heavenly things can birth. 
And the only way you can find out about heavenly promises is if you hang out with God and you have moments like this with Jesus. Because here's where I'm getting to. We're going to actually have a song that Rachel is going to sing. It's titled, You Say. You Say. It's Lauren Daigle. It's an amazing song. She's a Christian artist, but she's like top five right now in all artists. She's just killing the game. And Lauren Daigle, when she was a young girl, she had a grandpa. And the grandpa would call Lauren and, Lauren, come sing Adele for everybody. So Lauren would start singing Adele. She'd start singing. And the grandpa would say, come on, Lauren. I've heard you. Come on. There's more in you, Lauren. Let it go. You got to let it go. Just let it rip, girl. There's more in you. And so Lauren would start singing even louder and more bold because her grandpa was calling out the gold in her that she didn't see. He was calling out the promises in her that she didn't see. When she passed away and went to Nashville, she credited those moments of her life of why she is who she is today. You got to think of Peter. Peter. I'm giving you this name, Peter, Simon, because I see gold in you. I want to call it out in you that you are going to be somebody who is used to change this world. Peter's like, man, I'm the guy who walked to the fishing boat every day. I'm the guy who got rejected by society. I'm the guy who nobody picked. I'm the guy who's cutting people's ears off when I get angry. I'm the guy who's telling you not to go die on the cross, and you're telling me that I'm going to be somebody you're going to use to build the church? Yeah, because God sees the gold through the dirt. He sees the gold through the mess. And he calls the gold out of the mess. And when he calls the gold out, he actually says, I don't even want you to see dirt anymore. I want you to see yourself whiter than snow because that's who I see and that's who I'm creating. So how does that happen? How do you have those moments with the Lord? I believe they have to be birthed in the word of God. I believe when you start to read the word of God and you sit down and you realize that Jesus wants to speak to you. This is not a, this is not a self-help book. This is not a, um, a book of just principles. It's a book about a man named Jesus who came and died for you that wants to speak to you and give you everything you're supposed to have and make you become everything you're supposed to be. So when you sit down and read the words, you're going to find out in Ephesians 1 that Jesus is going to say to you that you are faithful. And you may say, well, my life doesn't look faithful. No, 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 stop it. I see faithfulness in you. In the mess of you, I see faithfulness. You are now faithful. I don't care what the dirt says. You are faithful. You're going to read the word and you're going to see in John 1.12 that you are God's child. I'm your, I'm your child, but I didn't do anything to earn it. No, you don't have to earn it. I did this. I I bought you with a price. You are my son. You are my daughter. You are now an heir to everything that I have. All of heaven, it's yours. You'll sit down and God will see gold in you. He'll tell you this. He'll say that that you are his friend. John 15, 15, that you are his friend. He'll go on to say to you that you're a citizen of heaven. In Philippians 3.20, he'll go on to say to you that you have redemption. In Ephesians 1.8. He'll go on to say to you in Ephesians 1 and Galatians 1.14 that you have been forgiven of all things. He'll go to tell you in Ephesians 1.9 and 3.11 that you have purpose. He sees purpose in you. He'll go on to tell you in Ephesians 1.12 that there is hope in you. He sees hope. He'll go on to tell you that you've been included. Some of my favorite ones in Ephesians. He'll tell you that you're a saint. I'm, I'm a saint? Don't I have to do a bunch of things and then die of death and wear a big old tall hat for a while and then I become St. Tyler? No. I did everything. I already see a saint in you. I want you to catch this real quick. I was in Florida three weeks ago, and it was the weirdest week I've ever had. I felt so dirty of every mistake of my life. I'd be with my friend, and I'd be golfing in Florida, and I'd go to swing, and I would think of just something terrible I'd done in my life. I would, I, and I, I don't know why it was in my mind. And, I think how I dishonored somebody or I think about something terrible I did or how I dishonored a girl I dated in high school and it was just, it was tormenting me. 
The problem is, is, man, we got a lot of dirt on ourselves. You know what you think. You know what you've done. But the Lord comes on the scene and says, don't believe the dirt anymore. Because if you believe the dirt, man, then you're going to live a life of dirt. But man, believe what I say. Because here's the deal. If you don't know what Jesus said, you'll believe what the bully said. If you don't know what Jesus said, you'll believe what somebody at work said. If you don't know what Jesus said, you'll be what culture said. And so I just started reading all these again. And I started, no joke, you guys want to know why I was so fired up even last Sunday when I was preaching? I was like, woo, woo, you know what I'm saying? Because I was like, I'm a saint. I was like, yeah, I'm a saint. I started reading this. I was like, I possess the mind of Christ. Yes, I do. Come on, I kept, I kept on reading. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm promised a full life. I started reading in 1 Corinthians 1, I am blameless. What, I'm blameless? Yeah, in your face, Satan. Yeah, that's what I heard because that's what he said. He sees blameless on me. I kept reading, I am safe. I kept reading, I am overcoming. I'm not helpless. I found out I'm delivered. I'm a new creation. And last but not least, I was like, I'm victorious. Come on, you start reading the word of God, it will change your mindset. It will change the way you pray, the way you love. It will change everything about you. But you got to hear it from the right person, your Savior. 